It's a great honor for me to be here at the Empire Club of Canada today, which is arguably the most famous and historically relevant speakers podium to have ever existed in Canada. It has offered its podium to such international luminaries as Winston Churchill, Ronald Reagan, Audrey Hepburn, the Dalai Lama, Indira Gandhi, and closer to home, from Pierre Trudeau to Justin Trudeau. Literally generations of our great nation's leaders, alongside with those of the world's top international diplomats, heads of state, and business and thought leaders. It is a real honor and a distinct privilege to be invited to speak to the Empire Club of Canada, which has been welcoming international diplomats, leaders in business and in science and in politics. When they stand at that podium, they speak not only to the entire country, but they can speak to the entire world. Please welcome your host for today's event. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the 119th season of the Empire Club of Canada. To our in-person attendees joining us at the Arcadian Court in Toronto, I'm delighted to be here with you in person. And our virtual audience joining in live or on demand, thank you for your participation and support. This incredible community of colleagues and peers is the driving force behind our mandate to engage, debate, educate, and advance the dialogue of important issues to Canadians. Welcome. My name is Sal Rabani, and I'm the president of the Board of Directors of the Empire Club of Canada. To formally begin this afternoon, I want to acknowledge that we're gathering on the traditional and treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit and the homelands of the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. We encourage everyone to learn more about the traditional territory on which you work and live. This season, the Empire Club strives to bring you divergent and thought-provoking perspectives on politics, healthcare, technology, business, arts, and culture. Opening our 119th season with themes of innovation and technology and resilience in business means we've successfully met the challenges of the past few years. I hope today's conversation will give you a positive perspective on what is possible to achieve when we look for opportunities and challenges. As president of the Empire Club, my goal is to extend our reach to include the rising stars of our generation. I have benefited professionally and personally through the influence of mentors and sponsors who introduced me to their networks and provided opportunities I may not have gotten on my own. I invite all of you in this room to consider ways in which you can mentor and sponsor young colleagues, friends, and family to participate in this forum so we may continue to support the development of emerging leaders through public dialogue. Turning to today's program, I want to recognize the Empire Club's distinguished past presidents we've got in the room today, board of directors, staff, and volunteers. Thank you for your contributions to making this event a success. I also want to acknowledge Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, whose funeral was yesterday. Queen Elizabeth made an address on June 26, 1974 at the Empire Club's dinner in honor of the Toronto Scottish Regiment. 
She spoke graciously about Canada, and her sentiments reflect what the Empire Club is today. Quote, people from all over the world finding opportunities for full and rewarding lives. They're able to choose their various ways of being Canadian, respecting others, but not forsaking their own traditions, end quote. As we recognize and reflect on the difficult history of the British monarchy and Canada, we acknowledge the historical and cultural significance of the contributions that Queen Elizabeth has made. The Empire Club is a not-for-profit organization, and we'd like to recognize our sponsors, who generously support the club and make these events possible and complimentary for our online viewers to attend. Thank you to our lead event sponsors, Blake's, Canadian Securities Exchange. Thank you to our VIP reception sponsor, BDC. And thank you to our supporting sponsors, McCarthy Tetro, TD Bank, Touch, and Tories LLP. Thank you also to our season sponsor, Bruce Power. For those joining us online, if you require technical assistance, please start a conversation with our team using the chat button on the right-hand side of your viewer. We're accepting questions from the audience for our speakers, and there's a QR code there found on your program booklet or through Q&A under the video player. It is now my pleasure to invite Marco Triven, partner at Blake's Castles Graydon LLP, to introduce our speakers. Marco, welcome. Got your notes, Al. Good afternoon and welcome. It's great to see you all. Do you remember five or six years ago, the Canadian tech media was all over the tech sector asking, why are you not producing as many unicorns as the US does? We're still not producing as many as the US on a per capita basis, but back then we had about two. Today we have 27. So what's, what's changed? Why, what, what, is, what is the reason that we have this increase in the number of unicorns? Well, we've always had fertile soil for a startup hub. We have favorable tax policies around carried interest and equity compensation for employees. We have top universities producing top talent. And we have a government friendly to international investors and to immigration. But lots of jurisdictions have that. So what's, what's really different? What's really driving the change? Well, I think that a part of the answer is that over time, we have produced many serial founders. Serial founders are extremely important to the VC ecosystem. They find a large market, they disrupt it, and in doing so, they hopefully create a good exit for their investors. But also, they create value for their employees and founders. This now means that these former employees can become mentors, advisors, angel investors, and even founders themselves or start a venture capital fund. This further enriches that already fertile soil. And then when you add venture capital on top of it, you create something that's truly bigger than the sum of its parts. In 2014, VCs invested $2 billion, just $2 billion in Canadian startups. Last year, that number was $15 billion. In the last five years, 
tech companies raised $38 billion from the public markets and only, sorry, well, from the private markets and only uh, $28 billion from the public markets. So the private market clearly plays an outsized role in driving innovation. There's a new book that summarizes the power of risk capital. I don't know how many of, maybe some of you have read it. It's called The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby. It just came out a few months ago. It's a really great book and uh, instant uh, VC canon. And in that book, the author says, by forging, by forging connections among entrepreneurs, ideas, customers, and capital, venture capitalists transform a mere agglomeration of smart people into an inventive network. At Blake's, my, my partners and I work with all the players in this inventive network, and we see time and time again how important it is to have this to commercialize good ideas and to help companies, specifically startup companies that are software-based, find their product market fit. And today, we are very privileged to have with us today two key players in our very own inventive network, Damien Steele and Fred Lalonde. Damien started as a founder himself, having built and sold a digital dental laboratory startup. He's been with Omers since it was formed in 2011 and has allocated a billion dollars worth of capital to startups around the world. Under his leadership, Omers has expanded its Midas Touch globally to to Europe, to Europe and the US. And one of their biggest investments has of course been in Hopper, which brings us to Fred Lalonde, the co-founder and CEO of Hopper. Fred is that serial founder I was talking about, having successfully grown his prior startup to be acquired by Expedia. We all know the travel industry was battered by the global pandemic, some almost tried to say that, but do you know what Hop Hopper, a travel tech company did? They thrived. They did the seemingly impossible. I'm sure Fred will tell us all about it, but from the outside looking in, I think a big reason for their success is user obsession combined with a creative business model. As an example, my favorite feature is Freeze. It's a fintech product that's built right into Hopper. And um, just so you can relate to it, do you ever, when you're booking your vacation, I'm sure all of us get FOMO, because you, and this is probably the first time the word FOMO has been used at the Empire Club, I'm aware of that. Um, <laughs> But when you're booking your vacation because prices are always in flux and you're, maybe you're not ready to book yet because you haven't firmed up your plans yet, um, you're afraid of missing the lowest price, but you can't really do anything about it. Well, Hopper has you covered. You can lock in for a small fee, that lower price, and come back to book later when you're ready. An absolutely, absolutely brilliant feature. It's uh, insurance for travel prices. So with such great speakers, Blake's is proud to support this conversation and the Empire Club of Canada. And I'm now going to turn it over to Fred and Damien. Thank you. Thanks, Marco. Um, I appreciate you wearing the white sneakers for us to make us feel comfortable. But I left mine at home. I actually pulled out my dress shoes. Um, first, I just wanted to uh, thank the Empire Club for the invitation. Um, it's an honor to be here, and I can't tell you uh, how happy I am to be at an in-person event for really the first time in a couple of years, um, and so thank you for that. 
when, uh, when, when Sal called me up about a month ago and asked if I'd, if I'd come and, and talk about innovation, I, at first I thought I was being punked. I thought, wow, this is pretty cruel. Invite the, invite the VC to come and talk about tech after the greatest collapse in tech multiples since 2001. Um, but, you know, when I, when I look back and I think about the tech ecosystem as I was preparing for this, um, you know, I, I realized, and I was mentioning at the table earlier, if you, if you take any graph and, and any graph of the last 10 years, whether it's, you know, dollars invested or multiples or anything, and you just take out 2021 and 2020, uh, we're actually on a pretty good tra trajectory. And I'd venture to say, in Canada especially, we're on a great trajectory. Um, you know, we mentioned a few stats earlier about dollars invested, um, but just as importantly, dollars, you know, exited, so actual returns created, uh, followed a very similar path um, to what was said earlier. You know, we used to generate about two to three billion dollars a year in exits back in between 2013 and 2017. Uh, in, in 2018, that, that jumped to eight. In 2021, that jumped to 18 billion dollars. Um, and, and so that, that's the greatest stat I can show you in terms of a reflection of the value being created in Canada. Um, so as I start thinking about this talk and I start thinking about, well, how do I talk about, you know, tech over the last 10 years and everything we've went through, I figured, you know, much better than hearing it from me is, is, is to bring, bring somebody who's actually lived through it. And, um, and, you know, Fred has graciously agreed to join me. Um, this is admittedly very special for me. Um, it's the first time I've ever done one of these with Fred. Uh, I've worked with him for about 10 years now. Um, I've... I've looked up to him for 10 years. Um, you know, whenever I talk about stories about founders and the great founders that we get to work with, um, inevitably I end up talking about him and I'm sure my team at Omer's is sick of hearing me talk about Hopper. Um, so what, what I hope today, today to do is really just um, pepper Fred with a bunch of questions and, and hopefully get into a bit of the journey that Hopper's gone through and I've had a privilege of you know, having a seat and, and watching them um, do what they do. And, and I couldn't think of a better way of, of showcasing to you what Canada's doing, you know, what we're creating in this country um, on a global scale. Uh, so enough from me. Um, Fred, uh, thanks again. And maybe you could get things kicked off with just like the origin story of, of Hopper and, and, you know, back early days before I was, you know, Omer's was even involved. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I was, it's funny, I was preparing for this and I was reading the Figma exit, which I'm sure, so company sells for $20 billion, all that, and I read a timeline and like a lot of tech companies, they had this like five year block that they called the wilderness years, which basically means I don't understand what I'm trying to build, my company isn't working and we're straying. Um, and so Hopper had a long period like that. So we were founded in Montreal, um, 2007, late 2027, um, and our seed round was done by Brightspark, which is in my opinion, one of the better private venture capitalists. Um, this is Sophie Faran, Mark Skappinker in Toronto. Um, and our premise was that travel as a category had just not innovated at all. So I'd sold my company to Expedia. I'd spent four years working for these guys that went on to do Zello after that. Um, and it was just, you know, two boxes, dates. It was the same thing over. And this is a, you know, digital travel is a giant category. 
and big data was coming up. So Facebook was just out, YouTube was starting, we just got the first iPhone. You gotta go back, like a lot of things were very, very different back then. Um, and you know, we naively thought <clears throat> if we were able to build a big data platform, like Google does for search, we could do things. And what things were, how we'd make money was totally unclear. So we took um, $500,000, then we proceeded to um, invade Sophie Fares' office in Montreal. And of course, we didn't have enough money to buy real computers, so we ordered the parts that gamers use to make those tricked out you know, gaming stations. And so Sophie showed up at the office and she saw like piles and piles, like we, we bought like 500 computers and spare parts. And of course, we didn't have any cooling system, we didn't have a data center, no security. So we went to Ikea and we bought 50 shelves that are used to put stuff in your garage and plexiglass plates, because um, I heard that that's what the Google guys had done. And we started like with Velcro building this big data array. Um, and the temperature in the office immediately soared to 170 degrees. There was no AC. So we, I punched a hole in the ceiling without telling the landlord. And we tried to crunch big data with this. Um, so we basically built what it would have cost $5 million with about you know, $100,000 worth of capital and tried to make it work. Um, so at some point, an engineer from Sun came. Um, and I showed him this, and when he finally stopped laughing, he said, why don't you at least incline the plexiglass at 45 degrees, at least the heat will escape and you won't blow out your, 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 your computers. So we were started in this crazy idea that everything was possible and you need a lot of capital to do it. Um, and honestly, I wasted five years of my life in that period, not because we didn't have a good idea, but it's just the, the software to store big data was just not mature enough. So, I spent four years of my life rebooting a database every day, and we would just go home and make no progress. So one of the things that you'll probably find in your portfolio is founders are pretty weird. Like, we're wired differently. The ones that are successful, all the ones I know, they're all different, and I know quite a few billionaires that have you know, exited and all that kind of stuff, and they're all driven by some inexplicable drive to get the thing done. And it doesn't matter if it doesn't work, and it's not logical. So we did that for a while, and um, you know, we were just scraping stuff and figuring it out, um, and nothing was really working. And, but as we started accruing the data, we realized there's some cool things you could do. And our original idea was, it would be so much better if you could come in and say, find me a direct flight to a beach where there's good scuba diving for $200, and boom, that would come out. And so we tried to build that. And so we had aggregate data, indexing, all sorts of things. And, and we did this for a while. We opened up in Boston because we realized that we were missing like a core expertise. And this is a theme that's paid out for us. Um, and I, I say this on every stage everywhere. Um, as Canadians, we should be looking to have the smartest people in the world work for our companies, right? So we set up right next to the MIT and we started hiring MIT grads in Boston. And there was rumors that the company had left and all this stuff, which has never been true. And we ended up with a talent pool that was a mix of Canada and Boston. Then we opened up to New York and the Valley and all these things. But one thing that we learned in this journey is we should have no shame in hiring the smartest people around the world. If they want to move to Canada, all the better, but it's all about the value creation, not the job creation short term. And this is something that I think the pandemic has helped us understand. So long story short, we get this going, and we're about to launch this thing that can find you a direct flight to a beach with scuba diving, and Google buys ITA software for a billion dollars, and in the press release it says, we're going to build an engine on Google that lets you find a direct flight to a beach for 200 dollars. 
<laughs> and I'm like, wow, like we're done. It's just never going to work. Um, and so that was the genesis of it. And you know, we can get into the pivots and everything else. But of course, today, you know, what we do is very different. We're actually the second largest travel agency in North America. We sell about $5 billion worth of travel. The whole thing's growing triple digits, as you know. Um, and we have about 70 million mobile users around the world that, that do this. But the, the transition from our original idea, which actually was stupid, even Google failed at that. There's a bunch of reasons why that doesn't work. Um, and getting there is actually the real entrepreneurial journey. And you know, there's tons of examples of this. Um, YouTube was a dating site. Twitter was an enterprise platform. Shopify was selling snowboards. Like almost all the good founder stories, except a few of them, come from you know this this art of actually pursuing what really matters for the customers and, and pivoting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Not many people know this, but when so the the backstory of of how I know Fred is there was a previous partner and mentor of mine um, who's unfortunately passed away. Uh, he, he knew Fred, and at our previous fund, um, we actually tried to invest the round after Sophie invested. And um, you chose to take some money from, from a US player uh, who probably was the right move then. Then we moved to another fund and then you know, tried to invest again and couldn't. And then when, we, when Derek and I were at Omer's, I remember Derek coming in and saying, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna back Fred. I don't care how much money it costs. This is somebody special, and, and we, need to, we just need to figure out a way. And um, the, the interesting part of the story is the time that we invested, you were actually doing that, what you now call a stupid idea. So I'm not sure what that says about us as, as VCs. But you know, it sounds cliche when I say it. But we, we genuinely, in the venture business, we are absolutely in the business of investing in people, not in businesses. Um, you, know, you use that word pivot. I would rather put money behind a founder to figure it out than to think that I'm smart enough to pick the business that's going to last for 10 years. So, you know, help me as an investor, you know, as we think about backing these founders, like, how do you even manage these pivots? How do you, how do you know when it's not working? And, and what, what have you learned kind of along the way as you've kind of weaved and dodged? You're actually touching on something important that the Canadian ecosystem um, adopted late, you know, so maybe in the last decade. Um, Omers was actually leading this. So by the way, all the things I'm going to say about Omers, I say when he's not in the room. I even say them in Quebec in French when this is blue behind me, and they don't like it when you talk about Toronto and Quebec in a good way. So this is actually, this is actually fundamentally true. Omers actually, when you came in, is one of maybe two or three events that allowed Hopper to exist. And, and the story, as you guys said, I think there's two companies, us and Shopify, where you let the founder set the price at which you were investing. And you know, for those of you who don't know, this was one of the first times, if not the first time, that a, a Canadian pension fund was going direct you know, instead of giving their money to other venture capitalists. This is 2012. Yeah, this is 2012. And everybody was like, oh, these guys are gonna, you know, they're gonna fail, they don't know what they're doing. Like, the entire venture capital industry was opposed, you know, thought that it wasn't gonna work. And, you know, some things worked, some things didn't, but you got Hopper and Shopify, and that's a lot better than what most people did in that period by, a, you know, an order of magnitude. So, um, you guys came in, and it, and it was truly the, 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 the team. I, I thank you for saying founder, but it's actually we had a pretty good team back then. Um, and so, there's a shocking amount of investors everywhere, but especially in Canada, don't get that. 
they're trying to copycat like the last thing that they saw a US investor do. And the trick is in this business, as you know, is you gotta find the people that are the outliers in a good way. And you gotta back them and keep compounding your investment. So um, what it did for us, by the way, is we didn't need the capital, but we ended up needing it because nothing worked. And because you guys had done that, we were able to continue to execute through the pivot, which was the thing. So the story of the pivot is we were doing this search engine and it wasn't working. Nobody cared. Um, and one of the things that I learned um, from my buddies at Zillow is that you could get the media to write about you as a startup. But in order to do that, you had to feed them something interesting. You couldn't say write about my startup. So we were able at that point to predict you know, the best time to buy a flight. Very simple thing. And so we had this stuff that we pitched to journalists, to reporters that wrote about travel, which is what is the correct day to book a flight? And you could actually search for this. Like, and so you had a thing where you'd say, I wanna go to Miami and you know, I'm leaving from Toronto. And it would show you a black and white bar chart with error bars on it that said, you know, there's a 80% probability that you'll save $7 if you book on a Tuesday. And obviously this was not meant for consumers, right? It was in a research paper that we would spit up programmatically so that, you know, when they write the papers about, you know, the upcoming, you know, season of travel, which they always do, they could get some data from us and then they had to attribute it to Hopper. And we gave this to a reporter at the New York Times. And instead of writing the story, um, so I remember at that point, um, Colorado had legalized weed and it was the first state to do it. And we, we said, when Colorado did that, flight demand went up 20% and we went like, our story went viral around the world. People thought we were a weed startup and I was like, no, we're actually in travel. So it, it kind of worked, but you know, in the wrong way. And so this guy from the New York Times looks at it and says, actually, I'm gonna write about your tool. The fact that you can tell me which day of the week to, to buy seven, to save $7. And he did, without really telling us. And then they put it in the digital edition and within an hour was the second most emailed article of the New York Times. And it took all of our servers down. And it wasn't even on our homepage because we were doing this other stupid thing, right? And so then they ran it in print on a Sunday and the next thing I knew, like I'm waking up on Monday and we're on Good Morning America. Like they're literally talking about us. They're pr and then, then it got syndicated and it was running on the local news channels and it just, it was a catastrophe because we, we didn't, we weren't set up to do this. And this was a very important point because what we learned is that even though we thought this other thing was a great idea and we told our investors and by then we'd raised $20 million, a lot of it was from Omers, um, what people really had deep anxiety around is how to save $7 and if they could do that by booking on a Tuesday instead of a Wednesday. And as much as, you know, travel digital was like 20 years old, you'd think every problem was solved. Expedia was selling $100 billion of stuff. Nobody had ever addressed the, the question of when should I buy this ticket? Although, if you work and travel in any capacity and you go to any holiday party and you talk to any of your relatives, the one question you hear every year is, Fred, when should I buy my ticket to Miami, right? And nobody had ever solved that. And so that is what real product market fit looks like. Long story short, we made it into an app and we got a million downloads in the first month, which back then, this is 2014, was like a crazy, crazy number. Um, and actually, this is the second part of this, um, and, and by the way, to do that, we had to fire people, drop all this other stuff we were doing, this really traumatic event, but it was clear the signal was so strong. And so when we launched the app, I'm, you know, 
with 20 people. We happened to do the launch party in Boston. And we get a call on somebody's cell phone. And it's my one Apple web you know, engineer that write, wrote the app. And he puts his hand. He says, Fred, it's Apple. And obviously, it's a launch party, so everybody's pretty drunk because um, they're on the West Coast. And somebody goes, who takes this call? And I said, I'll take it. And I'm 100% sure what I'm going to hear is, because we were predicting the, when to buy the ticket. It was more sophisticated by then. I was going to get a thing that says, hey, this is Apple. We just got to cease and desist from American Airlines or Delta. You have to turn the app off, right? And so I pick up the phone. I'm like, wow, this will have lasted like one hour. And you know, my product is going to get canned. I'm going to have to explain this to the investors. And what I hear on the other end is, hi, this is so-and-so from the store. I need you to do me a favor. I'm like, wow, that's not how I thought. And I'm like, OK, sure, what do, you, what do you need? He says, your app is only released in the United States. Could you release it globally? So I say, let me check with our data science department. So I put my hand on the phone, and I go to the one guy, and I say, hey, have you done any regressing testing on the algorithms um, around the world, like you know, if, we, if I leave from you know, Kenya and I go to Australia, and it's like, no, what'll happen to the prediction? Will it be accurate? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, could you turn it on? Sure. I'm like, yes, we can do that. And so we open the whole thing like, globally in the middle of a launch party. And then the guy's about to hang up. And I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Like, I have one question for you. And he says, thank you. I owe you one, which I'm like, OK. But what, like, I have one question. Like, why did you call us to do this? Like, this is crazy. Why, why do you care, right? And he says, well, your app has gone to number one charts everywhere, and it's only available in the US. And everybody outside thinks there's some weird conspiracy to prevent non-Americans to save money on airfare. <laughs> and that Apple is somehow complicit, and this is about to hit Tim Cook's desk, and I really don't want that to happen. And so it was literally, there was this Twitter and Reddit revolt like around the world. And this is like less than an hour before we launch around this. And that's when I learned the fundamental truth that all that matters is product market fit. In both cases, I had nothing to do with it. The users basically told us what they wanted. But that's the main thing we took away from that, that era. Amazing. Um, all right, so let's switch gears a little bit. Um, you know, Fred's probably the only founder that I've ever thought of actually working for. Um, there, was a, there was a point where, after we made the investment, where I, I considered leaving Omers and joining. Uh, looking back now, it was a, probably a poor financial decision. <laughs> but, um, it's still early. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we you don't know, know yet. But, so what I did instead is I, I, you know, I joke internally, it's not a joke really, is I, I, I bet my career on the company. You know, I, I think uh, there was early signs, uh, although I'm pretty sure we were still losing money on every flight that we mm -hmm. sold. Um, but there were early signs that you know, all this work, everything that your team had been working on was about to pay off. And so what we did at Omers is at the time, we were, we were into multiple funds. And you know, we, a lot of people don't know this. We, we do have some uh, third party strategic partners that we bring into our funds. I remember calling them up. Some of them are in the room here today and saying, look, um, I have this crazy story to tell you. I'm going to tell you about Hopper. I want to invest uh, $45 million into the company, which at the time, well, it still is, was the largest check we've ever put into any one company, um, larger than what we put into Shopify. Um, and I showed them all the data, and I said, look, either you approve this, or Omers is just going to do it all themselves. And you know, thankfully, they're great partners. They all said, great. Um, and we made the investment. All was good. And then the pandemic hit. Um, and you know, most of you probably know this, but like most, the, the crazy thing with the pandemic, and I'm married to a nurse, so I, I, I got to live the dark side of, of the pandemic. And, and my heart goes out to anybody who is impacted by it personally, 
anyone who runs a small business. Um, but the, the, the dirty secret in tech is that tech actually thrived during the pandemic, except if you were selling airline tickets. Yeah, that was a pretty bad thing <laughs> um, to be doing. So, so talk us, like, take us through that journey, because I can tell you I lost sleep, um, so I can't even imagine uh, how, how you got through it. But, but walk us through just that journey, because incredibly, you actually raised what I think was the largest round of financing post the one I'm talking about, literally during a global pandemic where nobody was getting on planes, you convinced a bunch of investors to put in, how big was that round? It was 80. $80 million into the company. Like, how is that even It was an upround. Right. That's the craziest part. How is that even yeah. possible? So the, the story there is we, right before the pandemic, we had started looking at our risk-based products. So I had a very nice plug for price freeze. I appreciate it. Everybody should try it. Um, today, half of our revenue comes from these financial services because selling travel is okay, but the margins are kind of eh, and it's a commodity. So originally, the idea was we predict prices for you. 95% of the time, up to a year in advance, we can tell you the best time to buy your ticket. And so we tell you to wait for months and months and you save a lot of money. Except 5% of the time we get it wrong and the price goes up on you. And so we were wondering, it's like, well, so we hose 5% of our customers and like, what if that moves around in the population and eventually everybody gets hit, right? Which, by the way, it does. Um, and so we're like, oh, the, the original idea for this was like, let's everybody pitch in five bucks and when we get it wrong for Damien, we'll just pay out the difference, right? Like as a risk pool. And so we started around this idea, like how could we build up margins? And the reason we did this is because um, we had negative unit economics on everything we were doing. We literally could not make money. After having raised $100 million, we had no path. Forget profitability to like zero, break even unit economics. Um, and that wasn't cool. SoftBank had, hadn't started doing its crazy stuff. Right? That, still, that, that was before it was cool to do that. And so we looked at these products and we're like, well, what can we do? And like, oh, maybe we can, you know, uh, ensure the forecast, like, you know, underwrite it on our PL. Or what if we allowed you to just change your ticket even if the airline didn't make it changeable, right? And so we started working on algorithms to do this because we're pretty good at knowing the future at this point, and so why don't we underwrite it? And it turns out these priced hedging products are not regulated like insurance. You can just do them. Um, you know, you don't have to, and you can use math, and you can personalize the pricing. And so we started building this, and of course, we didn't tell the board about this, like, and we accrued more liability on these products than we had cash in the bank. And then the pandemic hit. So the first thing is everybody denied that it was going to be a thing. It was something in China. Only China would close their economies. The idea that anybody in the West would be prevented from going to work was just like unthinkable. And then Italy hit. And, then, and so when you were in the airline industry like we were, you could see the planes getting grounded. Like, like you have these maps where you, there's 50,000 airplanes in the air right now, by the way, just so you know. And at any time, day or night, there's 50,000 airplanes up there. And you could see there were none over Asia. And then there would be like none over this part of Europe. And in the news, you were still seeing prime ministers say, no, it's fine, go have a, a glass of wine. And I'm like, but there are no airplanes over anything past Germany right now. And, it, and so we could see this coming two weeks ahead. Everything was getting grounded. All the economies were getting shut down. And I remember sitting in one of these soundproof boxes in our office thinking, by Friday, we're dead. It's over, right? And because like just paying out the liabilities would... And so fundamentally, um, what happened, why we didn't die, is that we had worked into our products the thing that said, well, if the airline gives you your money back, we won't. Right? So we'll give you the, 
you know, we'll, we'll refund the change or the ticket. But if the airline says, no, 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 you can get, you know, either future travel credit or anything, you can actually just use that. And the reason we built that in is because of hurricanes. You'd had these black swan events, which was the worst thing that usually happened, where, you know, all the flights on these coasts would get grounded. So our models were hurricane proof, um, and so were our contracts. Um, and then what happened, you know, in the second week of April, third week of April, like, everything got canceled. So imagine everything bought at Amazon being returned on the same Tuesday. That's what happened in the airline industry and in the hotel industry. It's like everything would break. All their logistics would break. All the warehouses would break. All the systems would break. And that's exactly what happened to us. So we had to process 580,000 cancellations. Right? This is what we had pending on our And the other guys had this too. And so Back then, to give future travel credit, that's not a thing that airlines ever did, right? The, either the ticket was refundable or not. So I don't know if you've ever been this, like there's a Dilbert joke about this. When you go to an airline and you ask for a complicated change, they start like typing away, and they're typing, and then, they're, like, then you can see the sweat, and then they're holding keys, and they're doing stuff, and it's a green screen, and it's really hard, and they don't remember how to do this. And so we had calculated that it took 20 minutes of these archaic green screen commands per refund and that we would be ready, like done with the backlog if we didn't sell a single ticket in 75 years. <laughs> and we had a thousand people, <laughs> like, it, nothing worked. And of course the airlines actually ended up building the technology to do this programmatically, like in a, in a panic, um, but it took them six months and every airline had a different thing. And in the meanwhile, people thought that we had their money. And so they're like, give me my money back. And they were suing us and, and, and you know, calling the evening news. My cell phone got leaked. My email got leaked. I got 10,000 angry voicemail messages. Like, it was just complete I was, I was getting emails weekly. Investors were getting emails. It was just, and this happened to every travel CEO. And fundamentally there we realized one thing, is that we could build a sustainable competitive advantage if we automated more than the other guys. And today, 80% of everything we do like there's no, there's, you don't never talk to somebody at Hopper. So for example, one product that we sell a lot of now is disruption protection. You, you should always buy this right now, by the way, like just, even if I didn't work at Hopper, I'd say this. You add this, it's $40 on average. If your flight is late for an hour in a connecting city, every flight leaving that airport is free. You open the app, it's $0. You tap, you get a boarding pass, you get on. Right? It took three years to build the tech to do the last part, but it's one of our best-selling products. So we realized fundamentally, because of the pandemic, that we could start to make money off of the inefficiencies. And then, you know, things started up again, they stopped, there was Omicron, there was this, there was that, it was all over the place. Fundamentally, in this six-month period where there was no product, after having laid off a third of the company, which we did because we didn't know how long this was going to last, we innovated more in that one year than we'd done in the previous you know, four years, five years. And actually, even though our transactions were down 80%, we more than doubled our revenue. And it, that's 100% through this realization that all, we'd survived like the apocalypse, literally, and that we could actually innovate our way into a better product. Then when demand came back, we went up 500%, and that's how you end up with these numbers today where we're, you know, like, in the billions of, of sales and global and all that kind of stuff. But the pandemic actually gave us a focus on the customer that we wouldn't have had otherwise. And um, the, the, the round that we raised was basically, because um, by then, by the way, to, to answer your question, 
we are probably going to close a $200 million investment led by Goldman Sachs. And so I went to New York to do this, and um, this was a week before everything closed, and Goldman Sachs says, we're going to give you a term sheet. We had a bunch of investors lined up. And um, when I came back, I caught COVID in New York. This was before there was the, the, first, the first case. And so instead of giving me a term sheet, Goldman Sachs gave me COVID. And of course, they all, they all pulled out of the, of the round. All the American guys did. And this is a case where um, we were supported by Canadian institutions. So the BDC, which is a sponsor here, uh, and this is Mont Quebec, which is the Quebec arm, had those... Um, the, the, those funds not been there to support the company, the layoffs would have been 60%, 70%. We would have lost all the muscle reflex. So this is another reason that I like the Canadian ecosystem. Um, there, there are fewer companies. When things go dark, um, you know, because we have a social democratic tendency, we tend to bail out our companies in a smart way. And I know of dozens of companies that wouldn't have made it through that. Because if you were able to survive the first six months, then you would thrive if you were smart. And a lot of that has to do with the uniqueness of our ecosystem. Yeah, I, I love that. And, and I hope people understand, you know, Hopper today is one of the fastest growing tech companies in Canada. So I know we're talking about a lot of challenges, but the reason I love talking about it is it highlights in, in tech world, it, it, again, it, all these things sound cliche, but it's never a straight line up to the right, right? There's always bumps along the way, which brings me back to my previous comment, which is why it's so important to invest in the right team and the right founder and the right supporting team. And really, the, the truth is, then get, get out of their way. Um, so another, another thing I hear a lot about in, in the Canadian ecosystem, and I'm interested in your opinion on this and how you've navigated it, is there's, there's this kind of, there's this tone out there that suggests that Canadian tech companies sell too early. Um, you know, your, I mean, Omer's is 10 years into this journey with you, and, and I know it started much before we got involved. So have you run into that problem? How have you said no? And, and what's your general thoughts on, on that comment? I think it's, it's generally true still. It was very true 10, 20 years ago when I started. So I dropped out of school when I was 19, so I started really young. And my first company was doing um, connectivity for hotels. It was just a random thing we did. Um, and it was bought by Expedia because the CEO of the time was from Montreal and he was back at McGill for a reunion football game and somebody told him to come see us and we sold our company that way, completely random. And so I ended up working at Expedia that bought us and it wasn't, you know, $100 million, but it was enough money to stop working. And, you know, back then when you sold your company for 4X, you were doing better than anybody else. And the venture scene, especially in Quebec, was kind of like broken. Nobody was really making any money and nobody knew what they were doing. Um, and so when they bought my company, it was about 100 people, um, I was 24 or something like that, some obnoxious age, I went to work for the guys at Expedia, um, and I ended up integrating my company within the P&L of hotels, which is what we're doing, and so I saw the P&L. And then we turned our thing on that we worked on for three years and our tech that we'd sold for this much money. And you know, everybody was like, Fred, you're great, you've created jobs, you've done a good job. And I saw how long it took for them to generate payback on their entire purchase price. 12 days. So I was staring at this dashboard going, well, A, I'm an idiot, but B, we're doing this wrong. <laughs> like, why did I sell, right? And so that was my, my, my initial foray into this. And so what happened in 2016 is I got a call from Lawrence Tosi, 
who was the CFO of Blackstone, CFO of Airbnb, is now a large investor and a, and a friend. Um, and he says, hey, I'm Lawrence Tosi. Are you ever in San Francisco? And he just joined Airbnb. And I'm like, yeah, I'm actually, weirdly, I'm going to be there. Um, he says, why don't you come over to Brennan Street? And I walk in, and Airbnb is this giant complex back in the day. And we walked in, and they were doing, I think they were doing about 20 billion of top line, something like that. And he says, hey, I'm Lawrence. And he, he brings me to this room and everything. And he says, do you want to see our deck? And he pitches me our, the Airbnb deck, which was amazing. And he says, what do you do? And I'm like, I showed that. He's like, great. I'll give you $50 million of earnest money if you, like, engage in an M&A with us. And this is, I've known the guy for an hour. And if you don't know what earnest money is, you get to keep it if the deal doesn't go through. And I'm like, A, I'm not taking $50 million of your money for no reason. And B, um, like, we're not, we're not for sale. I said, ah, come back, come back. And we, so Airbnb was like they did with a, you know, a company in Montreal that Joe Poulet founded. It was trying to you know, aggregate a bunch of things back then. And they probably would have paid a couple hundred million dollars for us, right? And that's when we came back and we went to CDPQ, but also you guys, and we said, hey, like, we need to do like, this properly. We need to raise the money. And we did an all-Canadian round. And so we turned down the acquisition offer. You know, like, back then... I, it's probably enough money to buy an island and clone dinosaurs, or like, for, personally, for me, I mean, right? Like, so it's like, you're in that kind of range. Like, my wife didn't speak for like a month after that. But we're like, no, no, we got to build it up, right? And, you know, maybe we would have gotten half a billion. Now we're at five billion, you know, U.S. And so it's just, if you're going to build a $100 billion company, you're going to turn down a $10 billion offer. And if you're going to build a $10 billion, you're going to turn down a billion. And the question is, what do you want to do? And in our case, and I was saying this before Shopify had its real ascension, we're like, look, Booking.com's 100 billion, there's no reason we couldn't have that in Canada. And people were looking at me weird. Then Toby went and did what Toby did, and now it's like, oh yeah, Shopify can do it. I'm like, no, like, there's dozens of companies that could be $100 billion. We just have to have the capital, the patience, and the commitment to do it, which means leaving money on the table in the build-up to that, the same way Zuckerberg did when he didn't sell to Microsoft. It's really that simple. Yeah. And listen, I'm here to tell you as somebody who follows the Canadian ecosystem extremely closely, um, while not everyone matches up to this gentleman right here, there are more high quality, passionate founders out there starting interesting businesses than I've ever seen before in the 15 years of venture. Um, so we've already gone over a little bit of time. So I'm going to invite Jennifer up here because I think we had, um, we're using a little bit of technology, so we'll see if it works uh, for some Q&A. We do have some questions. Um, the first one, Damien, is actually for you. Omer seems to be the only pension company that's jumped into very early stage uh, direct tech investing. Why do you think that is? Um, let's keep it short. I just think it's really hard. I think there's, there's you know, most of your finance people, there's a, J, there's a big J curve in venture. You know, you need to be able to have the foresight and the, the stomach to, to take on three, four, five years of investment. And I give all the credit to Omers for that, for, for stepping up. Um, but here's, here's the secret, and th this is why that's no excuse. And, and I'm here to tell you if there's any other pension plans or, or in the room, you should all be doing early stage venture. I walk in, you know, I sit down with George, I sit down with others at the board, I say, our job is, is to create income off of 2% of assets, and more importantly, is to have an impact on the other 98% of assets. And no matter what investment class you're in, 
If you don't think innovation is coming and going to disrupt you, you're sadly mistaken. You show me an infrastructure investment, I'll show you a tech that can disrupt it within 10 years. And so I think for us, it was a much broader decision than just investment returns. Um, and listen, we're, we're 11 years in, and uh, the early signs of results are, are positive, but it's, it's, it takes a very, very long-term view of the world. Thank you. Um, the next one is, you've both talked about incredible volatility, not just over the past two years, but, but the market today. Um, so the question to both of you, maybe we can start with you, Fred, is what's the one thing that keeps you up at night right now? That's a good question. Um, right now, it's, it's global recession. Um, like, basically, inflation rates have completely changed. And so, like, so there's a couple things baked into that. First of all, the, um, this is actually a Bill Gruley quote. Um, he, he, he basically said, like, Venture is a really crappy business. That's not the, use, the word he used, but if you know Bill Gurley, but like I'm gonna, I'm gonna tone it down. Because cyclical collapse is built in, right? Every seven to nine years, everything is supposed to fall apart. And so the problem this time is twofold. One is it got a lot bigger, um, and also it was the, this, this collapse cycle was stretched out by two or three years because of the pandemic, all the money that we printed and everything else out. So you had a whole generation of founders that never realized that there's actually a point where everything collapses and every IPO goes underwater. And, and I'm lucky enough to have lived through three of these things, 2008 and 2001. And so we actually understood this, and it is often tied to the macroeconomic cycle. And right now, typically, inflation rates are supposed to be at 4 to 6%. You know, and so I remember my dad paying 18 and 21 on our, you know, when I was a kid. Um, that's too high. And, you know, there's been this like 1% rule where money was just too cheap. And then a lot of this capital concentrated privately. And there's still over $3 trillion of, of dry powder out there. And then a lot of it ended up in the hands of people like Masa, who's brilliant but pretty reckless. And so what actually happened is this crazy party where the money was flowing freely from 15 probably to, 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 20, to 20, and then the governments piled on all of this cash. And so you look at the U.S. saving rate, um, which you can actually get, um, the, the ticker's called PSAvert, it was at 35%, and it's supposed to be at 5 And it's been going down since the peak of the, of the relief funds in the U.S. on a 45-degree angle. So already 18% of homeowners in Canada are reporting that they cannot make their payments. And so you're going to continue to see inflation rates go up. Um, a lot of it was this structural you know, supply chain, but they're going to have to maintain it higher because of the war on Ukraine, because of climate change, because of everything that's coming our way. And so we are probably going to end up in a decade where money's expensive, consumers are pinched, the middle class is losing purchasing power. And so if you're selling a commodity like we are, that's not great. If you're selling a dishwasher, you're in a lot of trouble. If you're selling a digital product, you can do a lot around that. But you, that is the thing that overall on a 30-year you know, cycle worries me the most. And I think a lot of tech founders that are younger don't get it, that the world has changed and to what extent. And I'm sure you're walking around explaining this over and over and over again to 35-year-olds that, like, like, what does he know? Which is the theme that I've seen in a lot of tech companies. Yeah, for me, it's a mixture of exactly that and the fear that our existing companies don't clue into exactly what Fred said. 
Um, and then the second is maybe glass half full, which is I am, I'm scared of missing out on the next couple years because I, I truly believe that the next two to three vintage years for us as investors uh, in tech, um, there will be incredible companies created and funded over the next two to three years um, on the backs of the euphoria of 2020 and 2021. Listen, everyone was a genius in our business in 2021. Um, the, real, the real players will, will prove their worth in the next three years, and, and that's my, one of my only focuses. Do I have time for one more? We'll go with one more. Fred, this one's for you. Um, you've raised consistently over the last 10 years um, from a whole array of investors, and so I guess the final question is, um, what advice do you have for Canadian investors and in the broader investment ecosystem? So this is um, it's what I've been doing with my own family office, um, and the investors I respect the most, Damien is one of them, but we have a couple of US ones. It turns out that the, there's only two things that really matter if you do a regression on portfolios. One, you gotta pick the right founders, right? And so you gotta invest in them in every company they do, you gotta follow them. You also have to invest in the people that work with the right founders if they're also smart, because there's a really a, a network effect there. So that's the one thing. So it's about relationships, it's about doing the right thing, it's about thinking long-term, not screwing the founders for a 1%, you know, and the best investors I know think long-term that way in terms of relationships. And the second thing, it turns out, it doesn't matter so much the price you pay to enter, it matters how many times you put new money in the winners and that you don't sell. And this is the curve that Damon was talking about. You do venture from a traditional finance standpoint. You do, you put some money in, it takes 12 years and you get 30 times your money. And you're like, wow, we've made a killing, right? And then five years later, that would have been 300X and you sold, right? And this is true for the founders, this is true for the investors. And so a lot of the funds still in Canada are thematic, which doesn't make a lot of sense for my first statement. But the second thing is they go, oh, I've put money in your B and that is my investment thesis. What you should do, and this is mathematical and I can show you data that proves this, is continue to compound. Do special vehicles, get the family offices involved, get whatever source of capital is to go directly. And the Americans, Sequoia leading, are leading this, have figured this out. Now, Sequoia tried never selling. That's probably too far on the, on the other band. But it's basically pick the right people, always do the right thing by the founders, and they'll do the right thing for you. And compound, compound, just keep putting money at every stage. By the way, for the founders, that's way better because you're not introducing new people, the relationships hold. It actually is a saner way of deploying venture capital, in my opinion. Great, thank you. With that, I'll turn it over to Sal. I'd like to just invite my, uh, my fellow director, Richard Carlton, the CEO of the Canadian Securities Exchange, to offer the appreciation remarks. Richard. Thank you very much, uh, Sal. On behalf of the members and the directors of the Empire Club, today's event sponsors, and of course the audience, uh, present and virtual, and yes, I'll echo everybody's uh, sentiment, it is great to be back in person, isn't it? In any event, it's my pleasure to thank Damien and Fred for their timely and insightful conversation today. Our audience might think it's strange that a public markets operator with a focus on early stage companies and ourselves a 20-year-old uh, overnight success, uh, which is how it always happens in this space, isn't it, Fred, uh, is one of today's lead sponsors. 
But the fact of the matter, and uh, Fred and uh, Damien have spoken about this, the ecosystem in Canada for the provision of capital to entrepreneurs is literally one of the best things that we do as an economy. Not only do businesses compete for capital, but we have other the sources of capital themselves compete. So whether it's venture capital, angel investors, private equity, and in fact, public capital are competing to provide capital to entrepreneurs who need the money to grow their companies at the lowest possible, co at the lowest, lowest possible cost. And our capability in this regard is really the envy of most economies in the rest of the world. And I think what, uh, uh, again, Fred has under, underscored this point, we really are all partners in the investment process. It's a continuum, not a contest. And uh, we really are supporting innovation and growth across all facets of our economy. So thank you again, Damien and Fred. And Fred, if you ever decide to take that company public, um, I'll take your call, I guarantee it. <laughs> thank you very much, everybody. It's been a great afternoon. Cheers. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Sure. So thanks everybody for coming out today. Um, as a club of record, all of our events are available to watch and listen to on demand on our website. The recording of this event will be available shortly and everyone registered will receive an email with the link. Our next event uh, is on September 29th. I'll be joined by Rick Leary, the CEO of the TTC and Anita Sharma of CTV News. And we'll look at how uh, the TTC is working with the business community with the return of its customers. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, we invite you to stay as you are um, to continue to connect one another. Have a great afternoon. This meeting is adjourned. Thank you.